As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 17 of Tiger Heart Chats. I just want to thank everyone that's been listening in. We've had some fantastic speakers over the last few weeks since we've been going into this fantastic era of the Tiger Heart Chats. Those of you that are sharing stuff, please don't forget to use the hashtag Tiger Heart Chats, all one word. And if you can subscribe, that would be awesome. But don't worry if not, I still love you. I've got a fantastic guest for you today. She is a keynote speaker who speaks on many subjects. She is listed as one of the most influential women in tech by Computer Weekly 2019 and 2020. She is part of the Council of Competitive Intelligence Fellows and founder of Mirabure. Please welcome to the stage the wonderful Suki Fuller. <laughs> that was me cheering for myself because, you know, Mate. we're doing this, this remote recording. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. I'm good. Except for I need some sun. Yes. Where, whereabouts are you based? Edge of London. Suki, there's a few people that are listening to this call that don't know much about you. Tell us about yourself and what you're about. That's That's the hardest question in the world, Sanj. It's the most difficult one. So... My name is Suki Fuller. I am a competitive intelligence professional. A lot of people don't know what that means. It basically means that I like to know a lot of things about a lot of different things. We'll probably get more into that, but I um, love to gather information, and that can be from open sources, you know, just your general book, listening to podcasts like Tiger Heart, listening to people speak, reading lots of books, watching documentaries, unfortunately a lot of documentaries, but um, or it could be just any piece of information out there. I'm just like, I suck it up. And then I like to put it all together, disparate pieces of information, analyze it and churn it out and make sure that it makes sense to your average everyday person and sometimes your senior executive. And that is something that I do professionally, but it's also the way that I live my life. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't really actually realize that a lot of who they are is incorporated in what they do. And I've just been hyper aware and hyper focused on the fact that's how I function as a person, as a human being. 
So that's me. You're an intelligence advisor. That's you as a professional. What is an intelligence advisor? So when you're looking at um, a startup, for instance, a startup doesn't really think about the outside world except for what are my competitors doing? Is there anybody else building what I'm building? And that's about it. And potential customers. But they're not really looking at the whole thing, the whole 360. And that is how you're building your team, whether or not you're building your team in the correct manner, um, who you have on your team, the skill sets that they bring. They look at that, but not in the strategic sense of what that means for your company going forward. Unfortunately, a lot of startups are thinking short term. They don't really, they're just thinking about, okay, how are we going to get to exit? That's that's the long-term strategy for a lot of startups is exit. And they don't think about the steps that it takes to get there. And some of the areas that are very important are covered basically in what you're doing intelligence-wise. And we're not talking about, you know, how smart you are. We're talking about what the landscape, what the market looks like, what you're doing internally, what your team is focused on, what your sales team is focused on. All of that is covered. It's the information that you are gathering, the disparate pieces of information. I use the word disparate a lot because very many people don't realize that something that's seemingly unrelated can be actually the thing that makes your company more resilient, the thing that makes your company die, (laughs) the thing that actually makes your company come into its core mission. And when you pull all of that together, we're talking about a startup that, say, has one person in sales. That one person in sales could have more information that is positive for that company than your marketing person, even if it's a marketing startup, because that salesperson is actually going and speaking to the same people that your competitors speak to. They're speaking to the same people that your former competitors, the people that had a startup that died. They're speaking to those people. They're speaking to a whole host of different sources and they don't even realize how much information they hold. Whereas your marketing person thinks because they're out there marketing, they're speaking to your potential customers, they're not gathering that information. They're just getting information relevant to you right. and, and that it's limited. So, and, and that's just with a startup, with a large company, with an MNC, <laughs> a whole host of different problems. Sometimes it's as big as figuring out whether or not you need to change your whole product line. You may be offering a toothpaste that is completely relevant. It's like, (laughs) you know, when you look at toothpaste, you wonder what is the difference between, say, a paste that is brightening your teeth and a paste with like the little bits of, I don't know, uh, little pieces. It's kind of like the sparkle one. I can't remember what it's called. Like a harder texture, like grit yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? what is the difference? Why do they not just have that? If if it's supposed to be great for your teeth, why are they not going to have that in every single toothpaste? Mm. It's like, you should really just have one that's like soft, medium and hard. That's it. Those should be the, the different choices and maybe different flavors. That's it. 
maybe a selection of nine, you know, soft, <laughs> medium, hard, different flavors and gel and not gel and a mixed one, which is gel and paste. That's it. But when you think about it in the terms of competitive intelligence and whether or not a, a company how, chooses to sell that, it's a myriad of different possibilities. It's like you have to go out and figure out how their competitor is going to sell that. So the shelf space, I mean, that's something a lot of people don't actually think about, how that is making sure that you have an advantage, whether or not your product is going to be eye level or whether or not it's going to be lower down. That's the difference between a couple million, a couple billion, and, you know, and zero. Right. Where it is in the store. So depending on which grocery store aisle it's on, which, you know, different groceries have their... Um, that's a whole nother area of, you know, psychographics and psychometrics and the, the data that goes into figuring out how a grocery store should be laid out. But depending on the store, that depends on what level, what shelf you want your product on. Because in some stores, if you have a product at eye level, you're competing directly with somebody who might be selling better. But if you have it lower, you may be competing competing with the store brand right and you might get more sales because you are competing with the store brand because it's cheaper people will be looking at your products you'll get more eyeballs on your products because they'll go well that one's up there that's a ultra brand and i'm not going to pay that money they'll look further down the shelf and they'll go oh that's the store brand but this is another brand and ah, that's a <laughs> little bit it's a little bit more money but I know that that company is really good and the store brand I'm not really sure about. So they're going to pick your brand. Just with regards to competitive intelligence, do you particularly just work with retail businesses or is it the whole spectrum? It's the whole spectrum. Right. Okay. So with regards to retail, the example you're talking about at the moment is specific to a consumer in store. What other examples of competitive intelligence have you been put in front of it? Well, let's talk about one that's really very relevant right now, and that is pharmaceuticals, because yeah. we all know everybody's trying to find a COVID vaccine. Yeah. So in pharmaceuticals, when you start out looking at a therapeutic area, you'll be wanting to find, well, basically the patients for that trial. You'll be wanting to find the doctors that are going to be testing. And in pharmaceuticals, it's very, very competitive. Uh, it takes a drug 20 years to come to market, which is really quite amazing given how far people are progressing with the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Um, but also the COVID vaccine, they weren't really starting from zero when yeah. you look at it. You know, they already had some ideas based on um, SARS, based on malaria, based on other, other areas in the medical field that were somewhat similar. And in pharmaceuticals, what is absolutely fascinating is as a competitive intelligence professional you are sometimes looking at a therapeutic area and you have no medical background i started out in pharmaceuticals and i had no medical background whatsoever <laughs> zero <laughs> zilch nada and my first day on the job at this pharmaceutical consulting company was to go to the ADA, which is the American Diabetes Association Conference. Right. It's huge. It's 50,000 plus people. Wow. 
and here I am, green as anything, <laughs> and I'm going to this event. And they basically said, we want you to learn as much as possible about a particular compound. And at the time, and I can speak about that now, it was a thing called endocannabinoids. Very relevant right now because it is cannabis-based. Right. And this was a compound which was going to be saving the pharmaceutical industry. Um, we have um, sort of uh, the super drug. It was going to be the next Lipitor. And it was going to be the drug that would help diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular. And a lot of people were looking at this and going, this is really great. We need to know as much as possible. Pharmaceutical company that we were working for wanted to know what their competitor was doing, what stage of their clinical trial they were at, um, who the doctors were that were testing this drug for them. Basically, they wanted to know where they were and whether it was not worth them continuing to pursue this in the way that they were. Right. My job is to find that information. So I go to this conference. I find as many people to speak to as possible. I go to the conference. I go and look at all the medical posters that are up, scanning for the name doctors that have written those particular papers about this particular compound, then going to find those doctors, speaking to them to find out who they're actually working for because you know, research is funded by somebody. Right. And then there's also, at the time, using social media, and that was the early days of Twitter, that I said, I, I know how to do this. <laughs> I'm going to use LinkedIn. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty much one of the first people in the intelligence field to use social media in order to gather intelligence. Because back then, nobody really cared about, you know, putting down that they worked for this particular department in this company. Nobody really cared about when they checked into a coffee shop that it was a doctor working on an endocannabinoid compound going to a building next to Pfizer in, in New York City into Starbucks and saying, oh, he was really big meeting, but he checked into a Starbucks next to Pfizer, which of course meant to me, okay, Pfizer's funding his research. I know who that guy's working with. And that's pulling that piece of information, looking at his LinkedIn profile, looking at his company website, looking at the clinical trials that are listed on his website that he's now doing research for, being able to figure out that's the compound number they're using. So that's what I do. <laughs> I gather <laughs> all that information together and put it down and go, okay, we figured out where they are, because we know that based on the research, based on what's listed on his website, based on the fact that he had this meeting, that they are at phase two of their clinical trial, which means they still have another 12 to 18 months to get to the next stage. Right. We're now, oh, okay, we're pretty even with where they are. So we know their, their basic timeline of when they'll go through stage two, finish that, stage three, and when they'll be able to submit all of their stuff to the FDA for approval. How did you get into this industry? Ooh, when I was a child, <laughs> <laughs> when I was a child, I wanted to be James Bond. Yes. I also wanted to be Indiana Jones <laughs> and I wanted to be Poirot and all, all guys. I really never actually thought about the fact they were all guys until probably about the last five or six years. But, um, <laughs> I, know, I guess because when you're a kid, 
you don't really think about the characters being male or female. At least I didn't at the time. I think kids now do. But for me, it was just like, I was like, I just wanted to be all three. But I also wanted to be M and I also wanted to be Q. I was like, I want to make the gadgets. I want to play with the gadgets. But I want to be the person telling <laughs> telling the person that goes out in the field what they can do. So I was like, mm, yeah. And so I was always looking for, subconsciously, looking for a career that combined those. I don't think I really realized that until I found my career. Right. And I went to school, <laughs> major of chemical engineering and um, law. And uh, yeah, that wasn't fun. Where did um, you study? So I started out, which is not on my LinkedIn profile. I started out at Penn State. Um, everybody's always in awe, like, oh my gosh, Penn State engineering. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. I had the worst time. I did not enjoy being in, it just was not a enjoyable time for me. One, I was pretty much the only girl. <laughs> <laughs> Two, I was pretty much, I think there was, there weren't a lot of black students that were in engineering programs. Um, and I didn't feel uncomfortable with that. I just, it just was not fun for me. While I am naturally the base personality of my, of me is that I'm an introvert. I still need people. I am pretty much now an ambivert. Yeah. It's like I, I I need that mixture of I need my alone space and time, but I need people. I feed off of the energy of others. And then after I'm done with you, I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> you just touched on that with regards to your time at university, being a female black woman studying engineering. What were the difficulties there? What were the problems? Um as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I think it was because there were not, hmm, I would say it was probably more about my thought process, my lifestyle. Okay. The, the life I had lived because I was born in London. I lived a lot of places. I lived in the Middle East. You know, I lived in Saudi Arabia as a child. I lived, you know, we lived all over the place. Right. So then to go to a <laughs> a place in Pennsylvania where it's not really as global as the life that you've lived. Right. 
it's it's a little stilting to go from having this global perspective to go into a place where people didn't even own a passport and they had never been further than two states away. Whereas for me, having a driver's license was not that important. If my passport was getting close to expiration, I was freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> and so it just, I think my mindset was just a lot different from a lot of the students. And I basically, I, I dropped out and I said, I don't want to do this. I had this really great job working in a lab mm. and um, I got to um, keep that job. And so I was getting pretty good money and um, kind of took a little time out. It wasn't a gap year. <laughs> and it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to take a gap year. No, it was more like a gap couple of years. <laughs> and, um, and then I found this program at my alma mater, um, Mercyhurst University, and it was an intelligent studies program. Right, okay. When I walked in, when I found that program, I was like, oh, this, this is everything, everything that I, I want to do. And I walked in and I interviewed and one of those programs where you don't just go and fill out your paperwork and you know give them your money and apply and then they say okay yes you're in it's like you apply and they say well you have to come talk to us yeah and you get in through the general university and then when you apply to specific school you have to speak to them and then you have to speak to so it's basically about the process of about four interviews um, in order to be accepted into the program yeah I can hear in your voice, though, it sounds like there was a shift in how you were being inspired. So the place you were at, you weren't being inspired by those around you. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of like highlighting to you, oh, this direction isn't right for me. But you've gone in this new direction. And I can just hear in your voice, you're being inspired by the course, the people, the processes, everything. Oh, yeah, it, it was it was almost like it was like coming home. <laughs> it, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is why did I not know about this? And the really ironic thing is that had I not been in that city, I mean, the path that I got there, had I not, you know, gone to Penn State, had I not, you know, transferred to another campus. I would never have known about that program because I would have been someplace completely different in the world. Yeah. And not I'm not going to trash my, my friends that I met at Penn State because they were a really, really funny thing is all those people that I still am in touch with that I went to school with during that time, those early days, they're all the ones that were from out of state. Anybody who was from pretty much the state of Pennsylvania that I knew at Penn State, I'm not friends with anymore. But all the people that were from Virginia or New York or just other states in general, those are the ones that I'm still friends with. And that might probably play into the fact of they had a different mindset also. Yeah, it's not that you're bad mouthing the people that you're not close to anymore. It's just the way your mind needs to be nurtured is th through other minds that you feel like they can give you what you need from an inspirational point of view. It's so important. How long was the second course that you started? 
So this was um, four-year university program, a BA. Yeah. And um, I gotta say that that has that's when I really came into my my being, into me. Right. Um, sort of the transformation of me intellectually. Yeah. And also me being more comfortable with knowing what I wanted to do. And um, I, I, I love, <laughs> I love my university. I love that place. I love, I love the people that I met there that I'm really good friends with, the director and founder of the program, you know, my professors there. It was truly probably one of the most, it was the fundamentals of who I came to be as a professional intelligence person. That's and, amazing. Yeah, and it, it it's really, um, sometimes when you, you think back on your career, you always think about this, the standout people. And some people mention like one or two teachers. And for me, it seems like, you know, like I have like five professors that really, really transformed who I am. They really did. They really had a, a great positive impact on my mental acumen. <laughs> so when did you graduate from there so that was 2005 okay and did you jump straight into your business Mirabu. because i i did drop out of my first university program and then went back to school i was probably about eight years behind most of my fellow high school graduates most of my peers when it came to starting your career but the one advantage I must say I have is that even though I started my university program at Mercyhurst, and here's the really, this is like the mind-blowing thing. I started class the day before 9-11. Whoa. In an intelligence program, which was focused on national security. The day before. Wow. So that really sort of shaped, I think a lot of a lot of my fellow graduates did go into national security, but it did shape a lot of how, I wouldn't say how people viewed the world, but because I had a different perspective, having lived in the Middle East, there were a lot of students there because, you know, it's a U.S. school that had never even been to the Middle East. So to have someone there that has lived there, that understands a little bit more than your average student, was very helpful for many of my peers. Yeah. Classmates. So it, and the professors, I mean, we have professors that were former army personnel that had served in, you know, Desert Storm 1. So there was a different, our program has a completely different perspective. So it wasn't jaded. It wasn't really very weighted in one way or the other but that event happening really did put sort of a an urgency in making sure that you really understood the industry really understood the applications the theories the actual essence of what you were doing and the relevance importance that it had on the world and our program is sort of triple pronged and also double in the way that you're you're taught theory so there's a theory of intelligence so you're learning 
all the theory around um, the psychology of an intelligence analyst, your mindset, the processes of how you gather information, how you process it, how you put it all together, collate it, how you are actually analyzing that information, what techniques and methodologies you're using, and then also how you're disseminating information. So you're, you're taught sort of the national security way of doing that, the CIA way of doing that, the, the NSA way of doing that, all of those different departments. But you're also taught the competitive intelligence, which is sort of a, a nuance of how you do that in the commercial world. Yeah. And you're also taught the law enforcement aspects. So you're learning all of that, but you also get practical experience. Mm. practical application so from day one (laughs) of being a student you are given projects and they might be real world scenarios and because 9-11 happened a lot of people were actually you know as the world is gathering this information and you're seeing it we're actually also gathering that information and looking at and analyzing the possibilities of what had happened So that's so interesting that you started this course during just as a tragedy occurred that was very pivotal in the way national security was developing, not just in the US, but all around the world. Were there any views that were put in front of you that conflicted towards how you had been brought up as an individual because you're a worldly figure and you've traveled around the world? Yeah, I think probably... As, as we all know, when you get in that heightened state, and it was the heightened state of, you know, anger and frustration and just general rage that people felt. But also that there were a lot of people that just wanted to blame every single person that was from what they deemed was uh, Islamic country. Yeah. And for... The majority, and I think it still holds true, the majority of people in the U.S. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Yes, I shouldn't say it holds true, but it it probably does (laughs) in the U.S. is that they don't understand the differences, the nuances of people that are from Islamic countries. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they just see, when you say the Middle East, they just see this big blob on a map. You know, they think it's one country. You know, it's just like when somebody says Africa, they think it's one country. They don't realize 
Middle East is a region. Africa is a continent. They don't have that. And I'd say it, it is changing, but at the time when I was in university, that was not the way. I would corroborate that in saying that I've seen that change, but I also remember just what things were like before that event. And that's not to say there weren't those problems before, but it kind of amplified the problems. It kind of put a lot of people's opinions on the table which kind of allowed people to think about how people perceive parts of the world in different ways. So that's why I kind of focus on that question a little bit. It's just, um, it's just very interesting. Oh, yeah, it's completely. And it's what's um, even more so is after getting out of university, working in your career and seeing some of those fellow classmates that may have been completely just had some weird out of the world wacky ideas because they came from some small town and just seeing how they've changed how their thoughts their actions have changed over the course of time as they've become more i guess you could say worldly <laughs> and it's 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 great to see some people it seems have regressed but um <laughs> but it's it's wonderful to see that because they have moved beyond that small area that they've lived that they've grown and it's nice to see that progression and it's it's really great to see when somebody you know that came from small town pennsylvania went to a university in a slightly bigger city and then moved beyond that went to another state has lived in another country and really has come to understand the nuances of the differences of people even if they are from the same religion or if they are from the same background, how the nuances of, of life changes somebody. And it's, it's just, it is, I, for me, I love seeing that. I love connecting and reconnecting with people that I went to school with. It's like, wow, you really have changed, but not changed worse. It's not for the, the worst possibility, it's for the better. Because yeah. Rounded human being, and I think that is probably what's missing from a lot of. I think those nuances are, are missing for a lot of people in the world. They don't. They don't get that. And it's not easy as well. It's human nature sometimes to be afraid of something that you don't understand. Yeah, there's a lot of the stick with what you know, and yeah. that's, uh, I mean that's sort of kind of what happened here with with Brexit. Absolutely, <laughs> stick with, that stick with what you know, and it's just like. Uh, yeah, that, that's not going to work anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you should say that. On a film shoot last summer, I met a guy who voted leave and I voted remain. And he and I got on so well. We came from very different worlds and that was fine. And then we started talking about politics and I said I voted to stay and he said he voted to leave. I've got this kind of viewpoint of, look, we might not agree on everything, but that's fine as long as we're good to each other and good to the community around us. And then we started talking about travel and he'd never been to Spain before. And he said, oh, you know, he's like, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be driving down to Dover and I'm going to go into France and then drive into Spain. And he'd never been to France before as well. And I was like, mate, you're about to enjoy some fantastic wine, some fantastic food, loads of cool things. And I'll never forget, he messaged me when he was in Spain. This was like a couple of weeks after we worked together. And he said, oh, my God, this is like one of the greatest experiences of my life. He was in his late 40s and he'd never traveled outside of the United Kingdom. 
and he messaged me saying, I do feel like I made the wrong decision about whether to stay in or leave. Just on that experience of him traveling somewhere, which just shows how powerful travel can be. I, I think it's um, what was really problematic for me is that there were so many people like that. They never even had the experience of going overseas and experiencing a different culture mm. and all they're seeing and all they have experienced is from watching something on television yeah of, of being told by somebody else that this is what's occurring but never actually ever meeting somebody who is you know from poland or meeting somebody who is from sudan or meeting somebody else who is oh i don't know from France, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they've never actually experienced that, you know, and the only time they've ever seen anything has been because someone got on a, a radio show or, or someone was on a television show telling them that, you know, people are going to come and steal your jobs. And it's like, uh, no, actually <laughs> people were here because you brought them here. <laughs> let's not forget that point <laughs> and, and other people came because they came to be with their families and do the jobs that you didn't want to do but hey we won't we won't go down that we route. won't go down that route let's <laughs> venture say, off the it, beach it, track. Is, it is it is what it is now yeah and yeah, now yeah. it's just a matter of you know the 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 double-pronged part of me which is uh, the the british american part of me is <laughs> The British part is like, oh, you know what? Just get on with it. (laughs) And the American part of me is like, okay, let's make the best of it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's steer back towards you as a professional. You're a keynote speaker on a few subjects. And one of the things you talk about is female entrepreneurship. Talk to us about your view on being a female entrepreneur and also on the wider landscape of entrepreneurship within the female community that's also one of those questions because i never really um i never really thought of it as being as being female entrepreneurship because the majority of my career has oh well, no, i shouldn't say the majority my career has yeah. been a male-dominated field and it wasn't until maybe the last 10 years that the whole aspect of female entrepreneurship came to the forefront, even though it's always been there. I've always helped other women. I've pretty much just helped anybody who needed it, but I've always made a point of helping other women and I've always helped other women that are junior to me. So it was never, I never really put a finger on it, but in the the last few years of being back here in England, um, it's definitely come to the forefront because you see, you can actually see it, that there are a lot of females, a lot of women that are doing things that, but why has this not gained, to use the tech phrase, traction? <laughs> why, why has this not picked up? Why are they not getting the financial you know, input? Why are they not, why is no one paying attention? And when you see that happening, it's sort of ding, 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 ding. Oh, hey, yeah, it's because 
it's because we're women. You know, you always know it. This is just, you know, that that's just the way it is. You know it as, especially as a black woman, you know it. You know when somebody is eh, a little bit iffy to you, you're like, there are two factors here. I know what they are. But, <laughs> but then when you're in a society and you can see the changes, you can see more women that are saying, you know what? Yeah, I'm not advancing in this company, so I'm just going to leave because I have this brilliant idea. I'm going to go work on it. And I'm going to do work on it because nobody else is one working on, you know, uh, makeup or whatever or or sanitary pads for women. No one's working on, you know, something that is beneficial to other women because they don't think that we spend money that we're basically worth marketing to unless it's, you know, going to make them a whole lot of money. But the, the niche things they don't really care about. And when you're seeing that happening, you're seeing all these women step forward and say, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing. And you have to get involved, especially not just as another woman, but especially when you see and you can see the relevance. And I think that's a perspective when you've been brought up in a world where everything is built from the perspective of being the person that's in charge, the dominant member of society. I always give people the example of x-ray machines. The person that came up with x-ray machines, great, brilliant, can't remember the name, but yeah, brilliant idea. However, the core and base technology that exists in an x-ray machine is exactly the same. It hasn't changed since the beginning of that being developed, which is why you still have x-ray machines that will go off because of a woman's underwire bra. They won't go off anymore because of a belt buckle. Majority of them still pick it up a little bit, depending on the component of what's in the buckle. Woman's underwire bra, the actual structure, the, the metals, the whatever that goes into making an underwire bra hasn't changed. But when you walk through a metal detector, it still goes off. <laughs> and it's like... Hello, it's an underwire bra. You don't need to wand that. We know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, why has that never changed? I mean, we can talk about the new 360 body scan, you know, metal detectors, and it may not go off, but it will pop up on the screen that there is metal there. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, it's an underwire bra. But it's just, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely ridiculous when you think about that. And and now you think, well, you know, if there were women that had designed this or at least been in the team that was going into making the new metal detectors, that would have been one of the first things I would have pointed out was, hey, you know, I'm an underwire bra and it's metal. That's going to set it off. But no, they completely just didn't think about putting a woman on that team in order to, you know, entrepreneurship, eh, you know, whatever. Don't need a woman on that. Basically, which is the whole argument for inclusivity in business, which is if you have a diverse and inclusive team, it will be a better product overall. And that's absolutely it's one of the things I work with with tech companies when we talk about, you know, the the makeup of a team or, you know, like the ethics of tech. This is basically that this goes into it is every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at U.S. Border Patrol. 
Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The very core of the technology that you are developing, you need to look at who and what you are building and how it's being built by you. Get the perspective of a woman. Get the perspective of somebody who has a sight deficiency, even if it is something that has nothing to do with what you're seeing and maybe something to do with what you're hearing. doesn't matter. If you get as many points of views that are different than yourself, it will be a better product. And a lot of people want to skip that phase because they want to go for mass production. But in order for you to survive, I think, in the next environment of business in the world, you cannot go for mass production and mass consumption at the very core of what you're doing in the beginning because you'll just have to backward integrate. You'll have to go and reclass and retool what you're doing sometimes too far down the line for it to be considered worthwhile and also too far down the line that people don't want that change. Whereas if you put it in in the very beginning, it'll be more accepted. I also think it's the proofs in the puddings. I used to work for a tech company called Holition and we developed face tracking software using augmented reality. And we focused on makeup for some big brands. And there was quite a few competitors within the space that we were working in, but we succeeded. We worked with some of the biggest brands where we're a small agency because 50% of our coders, our developers were female. And it was really important to us, not just because we were making makeup, but because we were making a product. When you're building for the future, the team behind that build has to be from a very diverse array of people. And when you test it as well, you have to test it on everyone, including men, including people from Asia, including people from all parts of Africa, all parts of Europe, like everywhere so that what you're building understands what a human being is, not what a certain human being is. Exactly. And everybody, while I can understand the concepts of individualization, that's something that comes after you've built in the fact of as many individuals that are different as possible. And a lot of companies, a lot of founders, they start from the individual as just one person. I, I hate that aspect of segmentation, you know, your ideal customer. Yeah. I, I just, oh, I'm just, oh. <laughs> well, segmentation is a fantastic thing, but a lot of the time it's used in the wrong way. Exactly. Mm. That, that's, that's basically with any methodology that's out there. People pick and choose the thing uh, that is more acceptable for them. You know, that's the, uh, the biases of humans we yeah. work with, that we work with. And I always let people know, especially when I'm working with a company, I always tell them, you know, they, oh, these are the, you know, these are the methodologies we'd like you to do. We'd like a win-loss analysis and we'd like a competitive profile. I'm going, I don't ever stick with one aspect of that. <laughs> I might do a win-loss analysis, but I'm not going to go with every single aspect of win-loss. I will not do that. I will use a wide array of tools 
because that is what you need to do in order to get the best out of what you are looking for. Yeah, a, a kind of cleaner, clearer perspective as opposed to a corner of society. I always tell people life is not clean. Life is messy. And, you know, there's was, <laughs> my, my favorite phrase. One of my favorites is, you know, there are, you know, two very, very, very important things that happen in life, you know, and everybody, everybody experiences it. Well, you know, once you're here, you're here. Okay. <laughs> And then, you know, everybody says, oh, it's death and taxes. And I'm like, no, because we have tax haven. So clearly some people can avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, it, it's, it's pretty much death and change. And change is the thing that's in the middle of when you're born and when you die. And that's yeah. called life. Yeah. That is the only certainty that you have in this world is that there is going to be change. And if you cannot accept that, then who knows, you know, I don't know where you are, but obviously not in this realm. (laughs) So you've been listed as one of the most influential women in tech by Computer Weekly 2019 and 2020. What has that done for you as a professional? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The Computer Weekly, um, the the new listing for 2020, um, they had this, massive long list of I think there's over 400 women or close to 400 women and then they shorten it to 50 and so uh, I was like oh okay you know whatever (laughs) and and this year now I'm in the top 20 and I was like okay they just you know the the actual listing listing of the top 50 came out last week and I'm in the top 20. And I, I really don't know. I guess um, I, I don't know. I think maybe it's had more, more women, actually not even just more women, just more people in general reach out to me for advice. Um, uh, because I'm on the board of Tech London Advocates, I think a lot of people recognize that I... I don't know. I guess I'm a sort of a connector. And I, I, I think that's one of my superpowers um, is that I, I am too willing, I was told, to go out of my way and help people for a zero. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I need to stop doing that because um, I do have a tendency. I'm great at selling other people. I am absolutely fabulous at being a champion and a supporter for others but I really suck at doing it for myself. Um, Yeah. And the only reason I can actually talk about this Computer Weekly thing is because I had a pep talk this morning (laughs) from one of my mentees, not my mentor, my mentee, (laughs) who said, make sure that you own up to it and you own it. Because I, I have a, normally I would just be like, oh yeah, that, okay, whatever, moving on. Um, But I, I I really absolutely, I guess I'm maybe seeing the fruition of that. Maybe it's a little bit more recognition that I have worked with a large number of tech companies. Um, I've mentored a lot of accelerators um, for some reason, I think probably because of my analytical skills and my ability to be a little bit too blunt. Um, 
I've been a judge for a, a great many uh, tech programs and um, startup competitions and even just some corporate internal events just because as an analyst and especially as a competitive intelligence analyst, you, I think you don't, you're not beholden to any particular, for me, I'm, I'm very much a generalist. I'm not beholden to any particular industry. So yeah. I'm willing to put myself in a situation where I may not know anything, be a subject matter expert, but I am an expert at analyzing, tell a story and what that story could potentially do for you. And, you know, the subjects, the, the actual subject yeah, there'll be somebody who's an expert in that and I can speak to them if I need to know something specific. But when it comes down to analyzing information, it's just like looking at numbers. The numbers are still there. They're the same. It's actually what the numbers mean. That's mm. And that's my ability. So I think maybe because a lot of people have realized that's what I'm good at. Um, that's really helps maybe me be on that list and then professionally what has helped when people have spoken to me afterwards everything in life is a mystery until it's yeah. not no totally and i mean obviously your journey has brought you to that position and what you've given to the communities you've worked with is what's allowed you to get that notoriety and it sounds like a it's kind of opened a few doors but b it's kind of given you a sense of fulfillment am i right in saying that yeah what advice would you give anyone that's looking to get into your line of work? If you aren't curious, don't do it. Be insatiably curious. Um, I would say you have to like to read. Um, find find your, your niche. It's really hard once you're in the field to figure out what you want to do when you're in it. A lot of people in my field, they have pretty, especially on the corporate side, they've sort of honed down and they've figured out where they want to be because you can get thrown in a lot of different directions. And when you have the ability to analyze situations, sometimes you go into a little bit of what we call analysis paralysis or you're overanalyzing so many different things. Yeah. That's, that's also what happens with you as a person. So you have to have that ability to step back and look at the gray area and also understand your own biases. Yeah. I'm very much of my own biases. <laughs> so we had a coach speak on Tiger Heart Chats a couple of weeks ago, a lady called Emma Sheffield, and she mentioned that the most important thing for her was truly understanding what her niche was, because until that moment, she was going in all different directions. Yeah. And I, I think probably at this point in my career, I am sort of at a little crossroads because right. I love my intelligence career. But then I have so many people trying to pull me into this sort of into this I wouldn't say technology field, but more into the aspect of VC because it's it's been an interest of mine and I've, you know, I've helped a lot of VCs. I've helped 
founders go and get funding and they know that I think it's an area that needs reform. I can see it as clear as day. I think everybody can see that it's an area that needs some sort of reform. But I have people pulling me in that direction saying, you know, you could be really transformational if you, you know, if you really do this. It's like, hmm, that's a messy path. (laughs) (laughs) It's a messy road because there for me are clear ethical divides. And it is, you know, where you get your money. For me, it's, it's where you're getting your money. And as a VC, you have to, you have to compromise some of that because a lot of companies that have a significant amount of money are also not the ones you really want to deal with. I think that's a, that's a little bit of the, the battle that's going on with Suki right now. Suki, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your time on this call. It's been really insightful and really fun. There's going to be a couple of people who are listening to this call that I'm sure will want to get in contact with you. What's the best way for them to get in contact with you? I can't say Twitter anymore because I haven't been tweeting recently. <laughs> I would say um, LinkedIn, um, and that's just my, my name. Um, I would say... I mean, you on any other social medias? You're not on like Instagram? I am on Instagram. Um, I really haven't been doing any social media this last few months. Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, it's all just my name. And what about your website? What's the best website to get you on? It's sukifuller.com. Probably LinkedIn is, is the best one. I'll put that in the liner notes. Suki, thanks so much for your time on this. Those of you listening, please do subscribe and share. If you want to share anything, please use the hashtag TigerHeartChats or one word. I hope you guys are safe during this interesting period of human history. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, please be good. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit